welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 82, The Silver River. Today we will complete the clockwise journey we've been taking around South America to see what had been happening while the conquest of Peru was taking place. This time we take another step southward. If you've ever been to Buenos Aires, you will have probably been impressed by its grandeur. Although Argentina has been beset with major economic crises for a long time now, in many ways it feels rich and important. It's a huge city with architecture and food which feels European. At one point towards the beginning of last century, some thought that Argentina might take up the role which the USA did of being the great power in the Americas, or at least to form a roughly equal counterweight. Uruguay, just across the river, is one of the most well-off parts of Latin America, with some of the highest standards of living, and in recent decades, it's been one of the most politically stable countries. On top of this, the area is on the Atlantic coast. So although it's quite far to the south, this gives Spain easy access to it. The climate is temperate, the geography is favourable and accessible, and the river plate, which Buenos Aires and Montevideo sit on, forms a highway into the interior. All of this is to say that you might expect the region to have always been an important part of the Spanish Empire. It seems to have everything going for it. The truth is, it wasn't. Even if it wasn't one of the major colonial centres, you might at least expect Buenos Aires to be the most important place down there, largely because of the access advantages it has, sitting at the spot where the river meets the sea. This too, however, is not the case. Paraguay and its capital Asuncion are landlocked and buried deep inside the continent. Or you can reach them by going up the river plate. It takes a long time to do so. It was Asuncion, however, which was considered the more important settlement in the 1500s. Today we will look at the first Spanish attempts to colonise the region, the foundation of these two cities and give part of the explanation of why things seem to have developed in a counterintuitive way there. The Spanish had a rough idea of the geography of the southern end of South America, thanks to the circumnavigations of the globe which had been achieved decades earlier. They also knew that all of this nominally belonged to them under the Treaty of Tordesillas. When Pizarro and Almagro were arguing in Peru, and the king assigned Almagro the land to the south of Cusco. He decided that he may as well divide the rest of the land even further to the south while he was at it, and he created three new viceroyalties. He did this by drawing straight lines from east to west. The most northern was named New Andalusia. This is a name which he seems to have been determined to use. It had originally been given to the coast of Colombia and Panama, but the name had not stuck. Then it was the name given to Orellana's proposed colony in the Amazon, but as we saw a couple of episodes ago, that never came to fruition. This new Andalusia included the land where Buenos Aires is today, with Asuncion being just about on its northern border. It contained the far south of Brazil, the north of Argentina, and from just south of Buenos Aires, the whole of Uruguay and central Chile. To the south of this was New Leon, this was basically Patagonia, and it won't be colonised, so we can more or less forget about it. The work of conquering down there will be done by independent Argentina and Chile centuries later. The final one 
also never materialised, and it was a bit strange. It was named Terra Australis. Australis means southern in Latin. It's also why Australia was given its name. It was theorised that there was more land to be discovered to the south of Patagonia, and so this would form the bulk of the Terra Australis Viceroyalty. Today we know, of course, that there is land down there, Antarctica, but needless to say, even if it had been found, it's very unlikely that the Spanish would have been able to successfully establish a settlement there. It seems they thought this unknown continent was much closer to the bottom end of South America. According to Maori oral history, one of their explorers may have reached Antarctica, obviously a long way from the section to the south of the Americas, but it wasn't until the early 1800s that the existence of the continent was confirmed to the world as a whole by a Russian expedition, and again, this took place much closer to New Zealand than to the Americas. Because Tierra del Fuego, the southern tip of South America, is separated from the rest of the continent by a network of fjords and channels, it was hypothesized that it was part of this mythical new continent. Tierra del Fuego was therefore given to the Terra Australis Viceroyalty, rather than to New León. It formed the only part of this Viceroyalty which actually existed. No attempt was made to colonise it, so it remains a historical oddity, and we can now forget about it for the purpose of this story. It was in 1536 that the first attempt was made to settle New Andalusia. A man named Pedro de Mendoza had been made the Viceroy two years earlier, and he was instructed to begin the process of colonisation. Mendoza was from a very powerful family, and he was a friend of the king. To date, the most notable thing he had done was to fight in Italy when Spain was waging its wars against France there. Now he took 2,000 men with him on 11 ships, and he brought an unusually high number of women, which suggests that he thought that the conquest portion of the establishment of the colony would be quick and easy, and he could jump straight ahead to the settlement stage. He also collected 200 slaves on the Cabo Verde Islands to do the actual physical work. Because of his status, he had no problems obtaining funding, and part of this came from the Fuga and Velsa families we met in Venezuela. With everything ready, he began the trip across the Atlantic. The journey wasn't a smooth one. They sailed into a storm off the coast of Brazil, and the fleet was separated. At some point, one of the most important men on the expedition was assassinated. The details of what exactly happened and why are unclear, but it may have been on the orders of Mendoza himself, due to rumours of a mutiny. At the entrance to the River Plate, the fleet reformed, and then recognising a good spot, Mendoza chose the place where Buenos Aires is today to found a settlement. The exact spot he chose is today in the neighbourhood of San Telmo, which is about 15 or 20 minutes' walk from the Presidential Palace and the obelisk which serves as the main meeting place for big events in the city today. The newly founded town really was in exactly the same place as the city stands today. While the settlement seemed to have everything it needed to develop, these earliest years were difficult. At first they had reasonable relations with the indigenous people in the area, and so they weren't having to defend themselves from attacks. Of course, it would be a while before they could produce enough food to sustain themselves, so after making repeated demands for help, the Spanish wore out their welcome. 
After some skirmishes, Mendoza sent his brother to attack the indigenous people, but he lost the battle and was killed. Apparently, his opponents had developed a weapon which consisted of two heavy balls tied at each end of a rope. These were thrown at the enemy and were particularly useful against horses, so one of the major Spanish advantages in battles was negated. The indigenous people then started attacking the settlement, burning several of the ships as they did so. The Spanish had built walls to protect themselves, but lacking stone, these were adobe mud constructions, and they started to collapse whenever it rained. Food became a real issue, and the number of Spaniards steadily dropped. Clearly Mendoza wasn't doing a very good job at building the colony, or at governing it. It's possible that he might have done so under normal circumstances, but the reality was that he was prevented from fulfilling any potential he may or may not have had. While fighting in Italy, he had picked up syphilis, and by the time he arrived in the Americas, it was severely impacting his health. A capable and active leader is needed to make a new colony a success, but Mendoza was forced to spend much of his time in bed, too weak to do anything. A year after they landed, he admitted that he was too ill to do his job, and he set sail for Spain. He died on the crossing. A man named Juan de Ayolas was put in command of the colony in Mendoza's absence. He had already gone up river and founded a fort to serve as a base for exploring the interior. Now he decided to set out from Buenos Aires again and explore further. His aim was to find a route to Peru. If he could do this, he might be able to establish an overland route for the silver which was now being mined there and this would make Buenos Aires extremely important. If the route was easy to cover, and not too long, his colony might become the main port for the Spanish in the Americas, and he might be able to steal the wealth which this trade was currently bringing to Colombia. He made it roughly a hundred miles north of where Asunción is today, and here he found indigenous peoples who had traded with the Inca. Because of this, they possessed some of the silver mined in Peru. This was encouraging, and he decided to return to Buenos Aires to prepare a larger expedition. He never made it, though. He was ambushed by a group called the Payagua, and in the battle he was killed. The colony was once again without a governor, and the next man in the line of seniority was named Diego Martinez de Arala. A few days ago, I arrived back in Bogota, Colombia. I'm delighted to be back in Latin America surrounded by all the sights and sounds I love. It's been a while since I was here, though, and my Spanish has become a little rusty. If you've ever learned a language for a trip abroad, to connect with family and friends, or simply just for the fun of it, you might know what I mean. To help get me back up to scratch, I've been using Rosetta Stone. It's been perfect for this, allowing me to pick up at the level that I'm at, rather than starting from the beginning. And as it's available on both desktop and as an app on my phone, and lessons can be downloaded for use when not connected to the internet, I've been able to make use of time spent on planes and buses. I've already noticed a difference as I engage in conversations with locals and navigate everyday interactions in shops, restaurants and museums. Its true accent speech recognition feature has helped me to perfect my pronunciation and encourage me to think in Spanish, as well as just attempting to speak it. Over 30 years, Rosetta Stone has perfected its language learning method to create a program which is immersive, intuitive, 
and designed to promote long-term retention. It's also great value, with its current half-price membership giving you access to 25 languages for life. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Latin American History Podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. There had been a few more small-scale trips upriver, and a few forts had been built along the banks of the River Plate, the Paraná and the River Paraguay. These last two were tributaries which flowed into the River Plate. One of the forts was named Asunción, and it was the future capital of Paraguay. Buenos Aires was suffering, and the attacks against it were not stopping. Herrera made the interesting decision to abandon Buenos Aires completely and move the whole colony up to Asunción. The advantages of the new site were that the Guarani, the indigenous people there, were much less hostile, and that it seemed to be closer to Peru, although the route had not yet been found. To me, at least, it seems risky to set yourself up deep in unknown territory and give up your access to the sea and to Europe. I'm not sure I would be a very good conquistador, however. It's no spoiler to say that Buenos Aires will be back, but for now, after only six years, it ceased to exist. Irala's position was temporary, and when he received an update of the colony's progress, the king sent a new governor. Back in episode 58, we told the story of the Narvaez expedition, of its failure and the enormous trip which the survivors were forced to take from Florida to Mexico. One of the protagonists of that story was a man named Cabeza de Vaca, and having made his way back to Spain, it was him that the king chose to be the new governor. Upon his arrival, he ordered the colonists to begin founding new forts further upriver, and he sent Irela to look for that route to Peru. Arella was unhappy at being replaced, and so perhaps he didn't try very hard. He didn't find the route, but he came back with promising reports which suggested that it would be possible. Always up for an adventure, Cabeza de Vaca decided to go and find it himself. This proved to be a misstep. First of all, he didn't find it. They went further than the Spanish had managed before, but they ran out of food and suffered from attacks by the indigenous peoples. More importantly, however, was what was happening back in Asunción. There were a few factors which influenced the course of events there. Firstly, there was the politicking of Arala, who wanted control of the colony back. He was trying to turn the colonists against Ivaca. This was made easier by the fact that a sort of proto-aristocracy had formed there. There was a group which had been there from the start, when Mendoza had first founded Buenos Aires. They had survived the attacks there, helped turn Asunción from a fort into a settlement, and now because of this, they considered themselves superior from those who turned up later. Herrala was one of them. Cabeza de Vaca was not. On top of this, Cabeza de Vaca had managed to make himself more unpopular among them because of his policy towards the indigenous people. He seems to have been relatively enlightened for the time and had prohibited the colonists from enslaving them. They wanted to do what colonists all over the empire were doing, and to produce as much as they could from the land they had been allotted. They wanted to do this for their own enrichment, 
without having to do any of the work themselves. This meant forcing captured indigenous people to work the land. Varela promised them that if he was in control, they would be allowed to do this. And so, a few days after Cabeza de Vaca arrived back in Asunción, Varela led the colonists in a mutiny and had him arrested. He spent ten months in prison there, while the colonists came up with a good reason to justify their actions to the king. Then Cabeza de Vaca was sent back to Spain so that he could be tried. One of the charges they constructed against him was that he had been secretly working with the Portuguese and that he intended for the colony to defect from Spain. This seemed to have some effect on the king, as de Vaca was exiled to Spanish North Africa for a time, but he wasn't there for too long, and soon he was pardoned. Newly free and considered innocent, it was already too late. He had lost his power, wealth and reputation, and he never left Spain again. He died a poor man, but not before writing what was nominally an account of the colony but was basically, in actual fact, an angry rant about Arala. Arala had executed his plan successfully, but it wasn't enough, and the king just sent someone else to take up the position of governor. His first choice was Juan de Sanabria, yet another cousin of Cortes and a distant relation of Pizarro. Sanabria died while he was preparing to leave Spain, but his wife and son made the journey anyway. This is where the sources I have found end, so it's not clear why, but although Sanabria's son reached Asunción and had the right to become its governor, he didn't end up with the position. The king eventually agreed that Irala could have control. He stayed in charge for the remaining four years of his life. This pretty much brings us up to date with what we have covered elsewhere. The colonists in Asunción will continue to live comfortable lives in their remote settlement, untroubled by the outside world. Their colony will remain far from events and power, and the region will remain a backwater. Buenos Aires won't be refounded for decades. I mentioned earlier that in the beginning Mendoza had brought over quite a lot of women to the River Plate. The early Spanish Empire was very much a man's world, and so there aren't many female protagonists in its story. Here, though, there are two women who are worth mentioning, although neither were among those who came across with Mendoza. I don't know how many of them survived the attacks and food shortages of Buenos Aires. The first is the wife of Sanabria, Mencia Calderon. She proved herself to be as tough as any of her male counterparts. Her journey across the Atlantic was beset by storms and attacked by those same French pirates who we saw bothering the Portuguese last episode. They found themselves shipwrecked on the island of Santa Catarina, where the Brazilian city of Florianopolis is today and after the most prominent men decided to spend their time arguing with each other, instead of actually going to do something about their situation, she grew exasperated and took charge herself. She led them all over land, across a great distance of unknown territory, and she managed to reach Esunshan. Accompanying her were many wives of settlers who were already in Esunshan. They were coming to reunite with their husbands, and when they arrived, they discovered that many of them had taken up indigenous partners. Apparently their understandable anger caused quite a lot of disruption in the colony. The other woman I wanted to talk about is known to history simply as La India Juliana. She was one of those indigenous women who had ended up with a Spanish partner. We can never know for sure what the attitudes were of these women in these situations. Their stories were never really written down, so it's hard to know what they thought. 
Of course, no group is monolithic in its opinions and in its responses to change. We don't know how willing these indigenous women were to become the wives of the conquistadors. It's possible that some may have accepted the new situation and saw this as a route to relative comfort when a conquistador showed interest in them. When you consider that the Spanish were enslaving indigenous men to work the land, it stands to reason that many of these women likely entered into these relationships against their wills. Even if they agreed, perhaps they did so out of fear. We can't know what responses and statistics would come back if you could somehow get each of these indigenous women to fill out a questionnaire on their situation. But we do know that at least one of them was very unhappy about it. Nestled inside his complaints about Irela, in Devaca's account he tells the story of Juliana, and this is how we know about it. When he arrived in Asuncion, he was told that Juliana had been in prison there, having been arrested by Irala for poisoning her husband. For some reason she'd been released, so Cabeza de Vaca sent people to look for her and have her rearrested. She apparently showed no fear when this had been achieved, saying that she would do it again, and even calling out for all the other indigenous wives to do the same. As far as we know, none of them did. Cabeza de Vaca had her executed for murder, and presumably she must have known this would happen, but she was still defiant. It might be a short story, but I think that what we know about Juliana's life provides some interesting social history and some insights into the early colony. Her story is well known in Paraguay, and there have been comics made about her, as well as a street bearing her name. She is seen by some as either, or both, a symbol of indigenous resistance and of feminism. Others consider her a patriotic symbol, something for the nation to be proud of. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have, and you're feeling generous, it would really help the show grow if you were able to leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. If you're feeling even more generous, it is possible to make a small donation. This helps cover the costs of running the podcast. There's information about how to do so and a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM and if you've liked the show you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes alternatively if you visit the website you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos most of these are my own taken during my time in Latin America all these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop you can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo that's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.